Chapters 13, 14, and 15 of 1 Samuel are crucial chapters. They're kind of the hinge chapters of this book. Because uh, This book, I mean 1 Samuel. Because in 13, 14, and 15, we see Saul uh, being, in effect, disciplined and judged by God. As we've said before, and I, I hope you remember this, it seems like weeks and weeks and weeks instead of just three weeks since we've been together. But Saul has a character flaw. And as we're teaching these books, First and Second Samuel, I'm not only focusing on the history, I'm trying to focus on the character issues of each one of these individuals. We looked at Samuel, and we'll see him come up again. But he's slowly disappearing from the scene because the monarchy had begun. Saul, in contrast to Samuel, is not a man of faith. He seems, when we looked at those early chapters of his reign, he seems to start well. How he deals, uh, you might remember, with the Ammonites at Jabesh Gilead and so on. He seems to be a man, at least to a degree, that trusts the Lord. But as a king, and I remind you of this, Deuteronomy 17 delineates God's ideal for the king. The king is to not do three things, not amass wealth, not amass chariots and horses from Egypt, and not take many foreign wives. <clears throat> Positively, he is to immerse himself in God's law, meditate upon it day and night, and so on. So the Deuteronomy 17 king, the ideal, is a king who totally trusts Yahweh Elohim, the God of Israel. And a king who leads his people, this is the figure of speech that's used, as a shepherd. He's a shepherd king who models before his people what a walk with God is to look like. And so he leads by serving. He leads by being a servant king to his people. How is Saul doing in this department? <clears throat> Saul is not a man who is shepherding his people. Increasingly, we saw that in chapter 13, when he does what God does not want him to do, and Samuel comes and says, because of your disobedience to the Lord, you, your family, your dynasty ends. None of your sons will, will assume the role as king, which would have been devastating for Saul at one level. Chapter 14, which is where we are now, Saul loses his authority. He will order the people to do certain things, and they won't do it, which we're not quite there yet, but we're going to see how that works out at the end of the chapter. And then we will get to this before the hour is up. <clears throat> chapter 15, Saul will lose his role as king. God says, I am taking my spirit from you, and I'm going to put it on a man after my own heart. We, we will learn in a fairly uh, quick moment that that's David uh, that is the man after God's own heart. So what's it, what is it with Saul? He's a man of fear, not a man of faith. 365 times in the Bible it says, do not fear, I am with you. And that is not only of kings in the Old Testament, but of believers in the New we are not to be people of fear. We are to be people of faith. We are not to be people of, if I use the word paranoia, do you know what I mean? A paranoiac faith, which is all-consuming fear. We are to be men and women leaders of faith. And faith is a confidence and a trust in the Lord. As you follow the Lord, your hand is tightly locked in his, so to speak. Saul does not do that. There is no record of Saul having any significant prayer life. There is no record of Saul having a contrite, repentant spirit. What we see is a man who's a narcissist, who's concerned about one thing, himself. And all he's concerned about is not the people, not the nation, not the good, but of himself. And he is the worst kind of leader you can imagine. And you're going to see the effects of that in these three chapters. Then, I'm going to summarize the rest of the book. 
Then from chapter 16 on, you ask this question, well, then why does God let him rule? If he's taken from him the spirit and put it on another man, David, you're going to see from 16 to 20, the purpose of Saul now is to test David. God will use Saul to develop and grow the leadership qualities in David. And he's going to chase, he's going to chase David around the Judean wilderness for 10 years. And David is going to learn dependence on the Lord. And so that, that's kind of the big picture of where we're going. So I want to get chapter 14 finished, and then we'll go into 15. Then he said he's going to take his spirit from him, but the spirit was with Saul. Why was Saul doing those things then? Uh, for the very reason I was saying a moment ago, instead of being a man of faith, he's a man of fear. And so that lack of faith, that is Saul's lack of faith, is what explains why he does such irrational things that don't make sense. But the spirit that was with him, was, and because you can't take something if it's not with him, so he took it from him, as you stated. Right. So how how does that work? Well, you uh, you know, the New Testament, you remember the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Covenant is different than the role of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant. The New Covenant, which is you and I are part of the New Covenant community called the Church, the Holy Spirit indwells us, empowers us, guides us, teaches us, etc., equips us, empowers us to live the life God wants us to do. The role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Covenant was to equip for service. The builders of the tabernacle were filled with the Spirit, it tells us. The king, well, not all kings, but most of the kings of Judah were filled with the Spirit, gifted for the service that God calls upon them. As in all cases, a person who's walking with God by the hardness of their heart and the searing of their conscience can ignore the Spirit's work in their life. You can do that in the New Covenant. The epistle of, of Ephesians calls that quenching the spirit. By our, and so Paul, excuse me, Saul, by his actions, is not following the Lord, not trusting the Lord, but he's all consumed by himself, such that he, the Lord has virtually no influence on him whatsoever. Not because the Lord doesn't want that influence, but because Saul doesn't, Paul doesn't allow the Lord to do that. And he's, you're going to see, we're going to see this in chapter 14, we're going to see it in chapter 15. Saul's going to cry out to God, and God won't answer him. We're going to see that in chapter 14, he will cry out to the Lord for help, God's silent. And the answer, the question we need to ask, why does God do that? Why is God silent? Why doesn't God answer Saul? We'll get to that in a minute. Okay? Let's pick up with verse 25. Of chapter 14. Hopefully this is going to go all right because I don't have any of my notes, I, but I think I remember all that I want to say. Remember that chapter 14, again, it's been several weeks, we're jumping into the middle of this chapter, but the Philistines, the at this point in the history of Israel, the very significant enemy of Israel, they have been doing, and if you look at one of the maps in the packet, there, and today, coincidentally, we are reading a lot about Gaza. <laughs> That's where the Philistines were. The Gaza Strip was the original area the Philistines ruled in at the time of Saul 3,000 years ago. And so what they're doing now, the Philistines, is they're doing punitive raids into Judah. But with chapter 14, they're moving farther north, and they're doing punitive raids into the center of Israel, which would be the Jezreel Valley. Their goal is to split Israel in half. That's their goal. And at that point, Israel is somewhat paralyzed by what the Philistines are doing. We read at the beginning of chapter 14, I'm, I'm reviewing what we did last time we were together, Jonathan, and the son of Saul, and one of his servants, they do a nighttime attack on one of the Philistine garrisons. And it's a very successful attack. And so Saul now takes advantage of that and says, okay, Israel, let's rise and let's fight the Philistines. 
And so in chapter 24, now the men of Israel were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath, saying, Cursed be any man who eats food before evening comes and before I rend myself of my enemies. So none of his troops had tasted food. That is, as they're getting ready to fight the Philistines, Jonathan has had a successful raid in one of the garrisons. Saul calls everybody to arms, and he issues this absolutely ridiculous order. No general is going to do that. No military leader is going to do that. Here's the vow. Don't eat until tonight. Don't eat anything. Napoleon Bonaparte said, the army, my army moves on its belly. If I don't feed my soldiers, they will never fight. And so Saul is, at, is issuing an absolutely absurd order. Cursed it be any man who eats food before evening. I mean, can you imagine any military leader, any military general issuing a curse like that, an order like that? That is downright stupid. Now listen to me. What do you not see? You do not see Saul going to the Lord and say, Lord, we now have a tremendous advantage against the Philistines. My son has started this, successfully attacking one of their garrisons. What would you have me do, O Lord? David will do that over and over and over again. That's all. Saul is not a man of faith. Saul is a man of fear. Saul is not a man who trusts God. Saul is a man who has one interest and one interest only, himself. And so he issues this order to, I'm going to be very blunt, to manipulate. In a very real sense, to manipulate God. Because what he's really doing is calling a fast. A fast is a spiritual discipline. A fast is something that is done in ancient Israel. It's done in the church. It's a spiritual discipline. You may or may not choose to do that. That's not my point. But he's calling it a national fast. But he's making an order. He's putting it in. He's putting it in the context of an oracle, a curse. The text says the men, the men are under this burden. Bound by this. Verse 25. The entire army entered into the woods. Now they're in the northern part of the mountains, right on the edge of the Jezreel Valley. When they went into the woods, they saw the honey oozing out. Yet no one put his hand to his mouth because they had feared the oath. I mean, just think of how absurd that is. They enter into the, a wooded area with lots of bees and there's honeycombs and just a tremendous opportunity to grab some honey before they go into the battle. But they don't do it because it's an absurd, ridiculous curse, so to speak, that Saul had put. So what happened? Verse 27. What's the first word? But Jonathan had not heard that his father had bound the people with the oath. So he reached out to the end of his staff that was in his hand, dipped it into the honeycomb. He raised a hand to his mouth, and his eyes were brightened. <coughs> it's kind of figurative language. Can I just try to, oh, that tastes so good. Have you ever eaten, you know what honey is, don't you? Ever taken a, a muffin or a, a piece of toast? I think it needs to be toast. I guess you could put it on regular bread. And you just put a coat of it. Oh, my goodness. That's what we're going to eat in heaven. That's angel food. I'm making that up. But anyway. And here it says, I mean, he's satisfied. But the problem is, Jonathan didn't know about the curse. 28. Then one of the soldiers told him, your father bound the army under strict oath, saying, curse it by any man who eats food today. That is why the man are faint. Jonathan said, I love verse 29. My father has made trouble for the country. So my eyes are brightened when I tasted a little of this honey. How much better it would have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder they took from their enemy. Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been even greater? So what do you have in verse 29 and verse 30? The contrast between Jonathan and the absurdity of his narcissistic father. 
Jonathan is saying, that order my father gave is ridiculous. I mean, look what happened. I tasted something. My eyes are bright. I'm ready to fight. Why not let the other army members do that? Not because of Saul. Verse 31, that day after the Philistines had struck down the, excuse me, the Israelites had struck down the Philistines from Michmash to Ajalon, they were exhausted. So there's a, a momentary victory among the Israelites. They've driven the Philistines from this area. Verse 32, they pounced on the plunder, taking sheep, cattle, calves. They butchered them on the ground, ate them together with the blood. Now that's a little sentence you ought to underline. Because Leviticus makes it very, very clear. Before a Jew eats a piece of meat, the Jew must drain that meat of all blood. Because you are not, this is a clear, clear dictum in the Levitical Code. A Jew does not eat non-kosher meat. And non-kosher meat is a bloody red Rare steak. If you're a Jew, you don't eat a bloody red Omaha steak. You don't do that. You drain, I mean, I'm, well, anyway, you know what I'm saying. So, in effect, now, so they, 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 the Israeli army has had tremendous success against the Philistines. They've now plundered their camps. You know what I mean by plundered? They plundered their camps, and there's a lot to eat, including the animals that they've now slaughtered to eat. Now, you're not talking about a dozen men. You're talking about hundreds and hundreds of men, several thousand, actually, that have been mustered by Saul. And so, in a very real sense, Saul has set the people up to sin. By his absurd order, the people, the the soldiers, now exhausted after a day of intense battle, they, they plunder the Philistine camp, slaughter the animals, and have an enormous barbecue. That's not in the Bible, but in effect, that's what they did. But in doing that, they did not drain the blood from the animals. They have just violated. This is a non-kosher meal. And that's serious business to the Lord. Verse 33, then someone said to Saul, look, the men are sinning against the Lord by eating meat that has blood in it. The observation that these individuals are making to Saul is an accurate observation. The soldiers of Israel are sinning against the Lord because they're eating non-kosher meat. They didn't drain the blood. Whose fault is that? It's Indirectly, it's Saul's fault because of that ridiculous order he had issued. Continuing, you have broken faith, he said. Roll a large stone over here at once. And he said, go out among the men and tell them, each one of you bring your cattle and sheep and slaughter them here and eat them. Do not sin against the Lord by eating meat with blood in it. So what does Saul do there? He provides this, it's presumably a flat slab of stone, which is kind of typical. You slaughter the animals there, drain the blood, then eat. Zoram brought his ox that night, slaughtered it there, saw build altars to the Lord. It was the first time he had done this. That's a very important sentence. It was the first time he had done this. Done what? The demonstrative pronoun this refers to building an altar to the Lord. Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them till dawn. Let us not leave one of them alive. Do whatever seems best to you, they replied. But the priest said, but the priest said, but the priest said, (laughs) who should have said that? Saul. Saul. But the priest said, Let us inquire of the Lord here. So here's something. I'm trying to get you to see the picture here of of what is going on. It's expediency. Saul has been caught now in the stupidity of his oath, his curse, his vow, his oracle. 
His soldiers have now violated the kosher laws of Leviticus. He tries to neutralize that by constructing a slab where they can now slaughter the animals and drain the blood so they can no longer violate the kosher laws. And then, oh, oh, by the way, I should probably build an altar to the Lord so we worship the Lord here. Oh, by the way, I forgot that. Okay. Okay, now, let's go plunder the... Now, appreciate Just a minute, Saul. You have done all of this without talking to the Lord, seeking the Lord's blessing, or seeking the Lord's direction here. You're to be the shepherd king of Israel, Deuteronomy 17. And when the priest says this, in effect, at the end of verse 36, that is actually an indictment of Saul's leadership. So if if I use the word expediency, do you know what I mean? Saul is acting here in those last three or four uh, verses. Saul's acting not out of faithfulness to the Lord, but out of expediency. Oh, oh, I forgot to do. Oh, my goodness. Okay, uh, get a slab so we can quick drain the animals. Oh, and by the way, I should probably build an altar. Oh, and let's worship. Oh, now let's go plunder the Philistines. It's like bang, bang, bang. Passive, expedient, act without the servant-shepherd leadership of his people. And this priest, we do not have his name here. To me, he's one of the courageous heroes of this narrative. He steps into the situation, in effect, rebuking Saul. Shall let us inquire of God here. And in the Hebrew language there, that's an imperative. Do you know what I mean by an imperative? That's a command. Saul, stop it. We need to inquire of the Lord here. So Saul asked God, I'm in verse 37, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into Israel's hand? Good questions? Yes. But the end of verse 37, we read, but God did not answer him that day. And you're sitting there thinking, how dare God? Finally, he's done what he's supposed to do. Let's explore this for a moment. Why didn't God answer Saul's prayer? God is not a God of convenience. Or expediency, to use my word. And Jim? Yes. Um, also, he, I mean, he kind of, he went, he went to God with his mind, not with his heart. That's a good. That's a good comment, Glenn. Um, it almost seems, doesn't it, as this is an afterthought of Saul, and it right. only comes to his mind after the priest says, "Let's instruct with the Lord here. Let's seek the Lord's blessing here. Let's let's inquire and find out." Oh yeah. Oh oh yeah. Okay. Uh, maybe we should do that. What, what's lacking, men? The genuineness of Saul's heart and devotion to the Lord. We're going to see, and you'll see this in coming chapters, David will do this constantly. When it's so obvious he should go after the Philistines, David will stop, nope, I want to talk to the Lord about this. And his men are watching him. <coughs> And his men watch as he he evidences this shepherd-like servant dependence on Yahweh Elohim, the covenant God of Israel. David is the king. Saul's not like that. Saul's a narcissistic, paranoid, delusional man who is failing time after time after time to lead his people. And what he did to the army here is an absolute catastrophe. He set him up to, in effect, commit sin 
in the exhaustion of of a battle to eat the non-kosher meat and not properly prepared. You cannot manipulate God. You cannot you 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 cannot set up situations where you are controlling God. Now, God, it's about time for you to act. It's about time for you to get on our side, Lord. Now, I'm going a little bit beyond, but what Saul is asking there, and there's two questions which are the content of this prayer in verse 37, are correct. But he should have done this in chapter 13. It's only when the priest, in effect, rebukes him in public that he does it, and the Lord is silent. Don't try to manipulate and control me, Saul. You really, you really don't mean this. And Glenn is right. This is more of a heart issue with Saul. And it's 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 the tragic um, it's the tragic element of King Saul. He had the gifts, he had the ability, he stood out among the people. He was a natural. The people look naturally. He's the king. As an old Baptist preacher, he used to say, "The eighteen inches between the mind and the heart." That distance must be crossed if you're going to walk in obedience with the Lord. It's not just a matter of head knowledge. It's heart conviction. That's what Saul lacks. You know, if verse 37 had started something like this, thank you, priest, for reminding me. Oh, Lord, I come to you this evening with sorrow and contrition on my heart because I tried to do all of this without dependence on you. I failed in my shepherd leadership over my people. Now in contrition and repentant spirit, I come to you. Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? There's a big difference, isn't there? Do you understand what I'm saying? You will see David do this numerous times. Oh, God, I am sorry. Be gracious to me. I did not do what I was supposed to do in leading my people or whatever the circumstance might be. And this is what's absent in Saul. He's a man of fear and a man of expediency, not a man of faith. And the leader of any nation at any point in history, if that leader, that, and I'm, I'm, don't, I'm not getting into politics, that's not what I mean, but a leader is to lead his people by serving his people. Leadership is not about narcissism. It's not about me. It's about you. And this is where Saul's at. He's caught in this. He can't get out of it because his heart isn't broken. So, Look at what Saul does now. I'm in verse. Are, are you with me? By the everybody, thank you, Glenn, for that comment. This is extremely important. I'm trying to get you to really see what God is doing here with Saul and why God is re- not responding, so to speak. Okay, now what's Saul going to do? You know, uh, he's finally. Oh, I'm so left God out of this. Okay, God, uh, what should I do? And God's silent. Then Saul, therefore, in verse 38, said, "Come here." All of you who are leaders of the army, let us find out what sin has been committed today. What's Saul saying? God isn't answering me because someone's violated the oath. Someone violated the curse. Is he correct in his assumption there? Do you understand what I'm saying? No, you don't not. understand what I'm saying. Well, that's it. I mean, this is what's going to be real interesting because what's Saul going to find out? His son did it. Is that the reason God isn't answering Saul? Because Jonathan ate a little bit of honey earlier in the day? 
I don't think so. But Saul's immediate conclusion, I know why God isn't answering my prayer. Somebody ate honey. Okay. I'm getting excited here. Verse 39. As surely as the Lord who rescues Israel lives, even if it lies with my son Jonathan, he must die. Now, it's interesting whether that's hyperbole, the language of exaggeration on Saul's part, or somehow he knew that Jonathan, even if it's my son, he's got to die. Someone violated the oracle I issued earlier this day. What's that? He would be, my guess would be the exact opposite. He would never think Jonathan did it. He, he would be exasperated if, if Jonathan. So he's picking the person he least loves. That's probably true. But not one of the men said a word. Saul then said to all Israelites, You stand over there, and I and Jonathan, my son, will stand over here. Do what seems best to you, the men replied. Then Saul prayed to the Lord, the God of Israel, Give me the right answer. And Jonathan and Saul were taken by Lot, and the men were cleared. Jonathan, Saul said, cast a lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. And Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. So Jonathan told him, I merely tasted a little honey. It was the end of my staff, and now I must die? Saul said, may God deal with, you, with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. Now, I hope you followed what happened in verse 41, 42, 43, and so on. They cast lots. Yeah, that was the way uh, God superintended that. They cast lots to find out who was the guilty party who ate. And the cast of lots gets down to Saul and Jonathan. They separate. The lot ends at Jonathan. So now Saul knows Jonathan is the one who ate. And Jonathan says, yeah, Pop, I did. I ate some honey. You want me to die because of that? And Saul says, yes. Yes, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. But the men said to Saul, should Jonathan die, he who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Never! As surely as the Lord lives, not a hair on his head, will fall to the ground, for he did this today with God's help. So the men rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. What did we just read? The leadership of Israel refuses to obey Saul's order and come to the defense of Jonathan and say, you idiot King Saul, God strengthen Jonathan to give us this great victory. You didn't recognize that. In your stupidity and narcissism, you're blaming everything on him. Reading about a hundred years, why God isn't hearing you. You foolish, stupid, idiotic king. That's all things I am. It's not in the Bible. But men, you have to see how significant it is. That isn't only a rebuke of the king, of the priest back in verse 36. You now have a rebuke by the key leadership of Israel refusing to obey the order of the king. In my Bible, which is in my office, not here, but in my Bible I wrote the humiliation of Saul. He's humiliated. He's called to account. And you do not see Saul defending himself. You do not see Saul insisting that Jonathan be killed. You don't see that. Here's another notch in the downward spiral of Saul. He is now being publicly disobeyed by the leadership in a very real sense, publicly humiliated because they do not. They defend Jonathan. In effect, they say the reason, the reason that he was victorious is because the Lord was with him. How can you be so short-sighted, Saul, and not see that? I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's an amazing 
embarrassment for Saul as the king. He's lost the respect. He's lost the dignity. And he's lost the obedience of the leadership of his country. Jim, this isn't just for this time. It can be contemporary as well. The same, the same rules, the same laws. Yeah, I, I think I think so. Um, yes, I'm not going to elaborate on that unless you really want me to. But yes. <clears throat> All right, the downward fall of Saul. It's a tragic, tragic story. Are you with me? I mean, do you understand why God is silent and doesn't answer Saul? And do you understand? What has happened now in terms of leadership team in relation to Saul, they are defying his order. We are not going to do this. We are not going to see Jonathan get killed. Your short-sighted narcissism, you're blaming Jonathan. Don't you see that God was with Jonathan? That's why he is victorious with that, that garrison. Okay, it's just a, he's a tragic, tragic figure in the scriptures. He, he truly is. Hey, Jim, okay. I have a question. Yeah. Jim, I have, I have yeah. a question. Um, yeah. In uh, 45, it talked about the people ransomed Jonathan. What was that process? What did they do to ransom him so he didn't die? Uh, that's that's really a good question. Uh, in I don't know what, trans, what translation am I reading here. NIV. It says NIV. The NIV doesn't have the word ransom. It says he has brought about this great deliverance. Uh, assured, et cetera, et cetera. The, uh, I, I don't think that, we, and that's really a great question. I don't believe we are to understand that the leadership paid anything to Saul. You know what I mean? Often a ransom involves some kind of monetary or uh, physical property exchange to buy someone's freedom. I don't think that's really what's going on here. What I think is by their, in effect, by their defiance of Saul's order, they are rescuing Jonathan. The NIV uses the word, the men rescued Jonathan, not ransom, okay. rescued him. And I think yeah. what the NIV, the NIV editors are doing, uh, I'm reading from Joe's Bible, but the NIV editors are, are trying to capture the real meaning of what's going on here. Okay. They didn't yeah, yeah. pay a monetary ransom. They rescued him by defying Saul's clear order. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Does that makes sense. ESV, it does. ESV has ransom. That's why I asked. Yes. Yes. Okay. Thank you. The remaining verses of this chapter, uh, 46 uh, through the end, is a summary. And Saul stopped pursuing the Philistines and they withdrew to their own land. So. What Jonathan started, in effect, is a momentary victory for Israel over the Philistines to go back into Gaza. And Saul had assumed rule over Israel. He fought against their enemies on every side, Moab, Mammonites, Edom, kings of Zobah, the Philistines. Whenever he turned, he inflicted punishment. He fought valiantly, defeated the Amalekites. And then Saul's sons are listed there in, in verse 49. So verse 47, 48, and 49 are a summary. And you see some amazing military victories of Saul, which are not recorded in Scripture other than the summary. So again, at one level, you see some very important aspects of Saul's reign, but the Bible is interested in one thing, and one thing only. Does Saul walk with God? And the answer to that is no. Now, chapter 15, chapter 15 is um, the decisive turning point, because here God is going to issue another oracle, and that oracle is in effect going to be, Saul, you've lost the right to be the king of Israel. I'm going to take that from you and give it to someone else. Why? Let's look at the context. Chapter 15, verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, 
I am the one the Lord set to anoint you king over his people, Israel. So now listen to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they were waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men, women, children, infants, cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. Now, unless you really remember all the details of Israel's history, this may be a little bit mysterious. The Amalekites are descendants of Esau. The Amalekites were nomads. They didn't live in it. You know what a nomad is. They're nomadic raiders. And when Israel had been liberated from Egypt in the Exodus, and then if you remember their refusal to, dis- to obey the Lord, they engaged in 40 years of wandering. Remember all that? Well, those 40 years of wandering are over, and Moses is leading them up along the east side of the Dead Sea, up along the east side of the Jordan. They're going to cross over under Joshua. Well, down here, right, here's the Dead Sea. Down here, the Amalekites fought against Israel the children of Israel, would not let them pass through their area. And God made a vow, and that vow is recorded there in Deuteronomy 25. It's in Exodus 17 and then Deuteronomy 25. Because of what the Amalekites did, I will judge the Amalekites. And it's now time in God's economy of things. Saul, you're the king. Samuel, my prophet, my judge, my priest at this point, is now communicating a directive to you, Saul. You will be the agent to fulfill this covenant curse on the Amalekites. Now, we've talked about this a little earlier, but you might not remember it. In effect, God puts the Amalekites under the ban. A covenant judgment by Yahweh Elohim, by Yahweh Sabaoth, Lord Almighty is the title in verse 2, by Yahweh Sabaoth, put the Amalekites under the ban, so you carry it out. What I promised Moses about 500 years earlier, you carry it out. It's time for the Amalekites to be called to judgment. Getting really, really hot. Winter isn't here yet, so I got to take one here. We're not going to have winter anymore in Omaha, as you probably know. And you're all rejoicing in that. I'm lamenting in it. it's God's judgment upon Omaha. You think of God bless, but that's all right. Anyway, so it's time now. It's time for the judgment to come upon the Amalekites. And Saul, you are the instrument of this judgment, and to be put under the ban. You might remember when we studied Joshua, the Canaanite cities were put under the ban, and they would destroy a city and kill everything because the the Canaanites were the enemies of God, and the instrument of that judgment on the Canaanites was Israel. Saul is to be the instrument of the judgment on the Amalekites. Their day of judgment has come. Verse 4, so Saul summoned the men, and mustered them at Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers, 10,000 men from Judah. We're seeing this happen over and over again. The text always singles out how many come from Judah, because Judah is the emerging most important tribe. So I went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. And he said to the Kenites, another one of the descendants of, of, uh, of Esau that are Arabic tribes and nomads. Go away, leave the Amalekites so I do not destroy you along with them, for you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they come up out of Egypt. So the Canaanites moved away from the Amalekites. And so attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah, which is in Mesopotamia, to Shur, which is on the edge of Egypt. He took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with a sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag, the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. Do you have a problem with that? 
Can't follow instructions? Yeah, he can't follow instructions. What did God tell him to do? Put the entire Amalekite group under the ban. So what has Saul done? He's done what every ancient Near Eastern king did. He preserved the king. You spare the king because in your narcissistic pride, you want to elevate yourself. Look what I did. And in addition, they kept all the peanut butter ice cream and Reese's peanut butter cups and Philadelphia steak sandwiches. They're all the things I love that I can't eat anymore. Notice that. The best of the sheep, the cattle, the fat calves, the lamb. Everything was good. The shepherd king of Israel just defied the Lord. The shepherd king of Israel just willingly, deliberately, and defiantly disobeyed Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord Almighty of verse 2. This isn't an afterthought. This isn't a happenstance. This is a direct defiance of God. They were unwilling to destroy completely. Everything that was despised in the week, they totally destroyed. And then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. Verse 11. I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Two things to observe here. We learn again that our God is an emotional God. Our God is hurt by our sin. Our God is grieved by our defiance. The second thing to observe is Samuel. This hurt Samuel deeply. <clears throat> Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told Saul has gone to Carmel. Now, that's not Mount Carmel up along the coast. That's Carmel down south near Hebron. It's a little tiny village. Now, notice what Saul does. Please note this. There, he set up a monument in his own honor and turned and gone down to Gilgal. Now, I want you to observe two things there. First of all, he goes down to Carmel, a little bit south, not too far from Hebron. And what does he build? A monument to himself. For what? I'll be very interesting to what the ceremony look like. I mean, what, what what is on the monument? What is it? What is it memorializing? My great victory over the Amalekites when I defied God and did not do what He told me to do. And then he goes to Gilgal. Now you have to refresh. Remember Gilgal. Gilgal is like Valley Forge. Gilgal is when the Israelites under Joshua crossed the Jordan River and planted their seed in the Promised Land. The very first camp they made was Gilgal. Every, every key leader always goes down to Gilgal. It's like returning to Valley Forge and, and just memorializing, this is where it all started, and I'm continuing it. Honestly, men... For me, this is absolutely unimaginable, the audacity and narcissism of Saul. He did not do what God told him to do, but yet he builds a memorial to himself, and then it goes down to Gilgal. In effect, oh, look how great I am. Look at these marvelous things I've done for the Lord. I hope you get the cynicism that's just dripping from my lips as I said that. And when Samuel reached him, so Samuel goes, remember, his, his city is on the east side of the Ephraim land grant. He goes all the way down south and goes up to Gilgal. 
So it's a fairly long trip. So he comes into Gilgal, and Samuel reaches him. Saul says, the Lord bless you. I have carried out Yahweh's instructions. <laughs> I don't know. I would probably put after verse 13 a bold lie. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? What happened to Saul? He's trapped. <gasps> oh, no. The Lord bless you, Samuel. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. Uh, okay. What you just said does not does not correspond with what I'm hearing. I'm hearing hundreds of sheep and hundreds of cattle. Where'd they come from? If your obedience to the Lord was so sterling, uh, where'd they come from? Verse 15. The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord. What's the pronoun? Your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. So there, time is, oh my goodness, I'm almost time. Um, can I keep going here? I, 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 like, I don't know if I can get all this done, but I'm going to try to do it. I want you to notice two things about verse 15. Number one, is a narcissistic leader always scapegoats? <clears throat> Who's the scapegoat? Soldiers. The soldiers. Oh, I didn't do this, Sam. I, I, I know what you're thinking, but that's not true. Don't think that way. The soldiers did this. Oh, but by the way, they did have a good motive, Samuel. Um, they were thinking properly. Uh, they want to use all these cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. What's the significance of the pronoun your? Not my God. Not my God. It's not ours. It's not his. Right. That's right. It's not our God. It's not my God. It's your God. Man, this is incredibly instructive of how far Saul has fallen in his walk with the Lord. He's boldly lying. He's scapegoating. It's, it's, just, it's just like Adam in Genesis chapter 3. When the Lord comes and sees, Lord, that woman you gave me, she's the one who did it. And then when Eve is confronted, well, the serpent made me do it. At the heart of sin is the conviction that I alone am the exception. I'll get away with it. God will never call me to account. And here's Saul boldly, I mean, like he's shaking his fist at God and defying the clarity of God's directives and blaming it on his men and then just tacking that. Oh, but by the way, they did want to sacrifice the Lord your God anyway, but everything else we destroyed. I love, this is NIV, this is Joe's Bible. Verse 16, stop! I didn't check what the Hebrew is, but it would be an interjection. Stop! Samuel said to Saul, let me tell you what Yahweh said to me last night. Tell me. Although you were once small in your own town eyes and did not become the head of the tribes of Israel, the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy these wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? 
Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Saul responded, but I did obey. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Malachites and brought King Agag back. The soldiers took the sheep and the cattle from the plunder, the best that was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice to the Lord your God again. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? And this is an extremely important declaration. To obey is better than sacrifice. Say it again. It's in, it's in verse 22. To obey is better than sacrifice. Don't throw this before me, Saul. That you guys spared the animals to set. Don't do that. God could care less about sacrifices that are not genuine from the heart. He wants obedience. He doesn't want legalistic conformity with a bunch of standards. He wants loving obedience. To heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination. Arrogance like the evil of idolatry. But you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you as king. Now, I'm out of time. I want to I start again with verse 22 next week. There's a great deal in that oracle from Samuel's lips as he speaks for God. I want to develop that quite a bit. But what you see is the downfall here of Saul. God has now taken the monarchy from him. We'll talk about what happens and so on in the ensuing chapters. But here you see, what, what's the king to be? Deuteronomy 17. The, immersing his heart and his mind in the law of God, meditating it upon day and night, internalizing it, making it part of his very being. Saul didn't do that. Saul's a man of fear. He's a, he's a man who, who does not have confidence and trust in his God. He's a, as a man who is interested in one thing himself. He doesn't care about God. He really doesn't care about obeying God. He's a man of expediency. He's a narcissistic paranoid. And now judgment day has come in his life. There's so much of what Samuel says here in verse 22 and 23 that I really want to unpack and develop next week. But we got to the point I wanted to get. I wanted to get all 22 and 23. No, not, we didn't quite get, get it done. This is a real trap. I'm hoping the way I've taught this, it's clear to you, this downward spiral saw. It's a matter of his heart. God does not want a shepherd king who's not going to walk with him in loving obedience because he is to be the shepherd, shepherding his people, modeling for his people. This is what a walk with God looks like. Now follow me as I walk with God. Not Saul. Great tragic figure of history. Great tragic figure of the Bible. And the contrast between him and David is going to be marked in the chapters that follow. Are you with me? Yes. I really mean, are you with the Lord? Because that's Joe, thank you for allowing me to borrow your Bible. I really appreciate it. It's time for me to get out of here. I'm going to pray, and I'll see you next week. Father, what a tragic, tragic figure Saul is. May we learn from him. Uh, he's a, a negative example in the sense that he's not a man who walked with you in faith and dependence in loving obedience. He was a man of expediency, a man of fear, a man whose heart was not right, a man not of repentance and contrition, a man of pride, a man of self-serving, a man who, who is interested only in one thing himself, and he doesn't really apparently care about his people. He certainly doesn't want to shepherd and lead them as a servant. And, Lord, the consequences of that we saw in chapter 13. We saw it in chapter 14 where the leaders openly defy him. They don't carry out his order about his son. 
And now we see this partial obedience, his lying before God, his lying to Samuel, his scapegoating of his soldiers. The Lord all falls on his shoulders. Saul is not a man of integrity. May we learn from this. May we be men of integrity, men of faith, men who desire to walk with you in loving obedience, men, men who are serious about our walk and commitment to you, men who rely and depend upon you like Jonathan did when he took that Philistine garrison. May we be the men that represent you well to our families, to our spouses, to our children, to our grandchildren. May they look at us as the spiritual leaders that they want to model themselves after, not because we are great, but because you are great. We are dependent on you as we lead, as we serve, and we want to represent you well in that area. Help us to be men like Jonathan, men like David, not like Saul. So we trust you with this. Bless each guy here and the guys online. May we go out into this world the rest of this day and this week. Is your salt and light to the glory of your son, we pray. Amen. See you next week.